save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning, I'm Ellie Weiss, and this is Our Wild World. My guest today is veteran conservation journalist Ted Williams, a prolific full-time writer for just about all publications about our environment, from Audubon to High Country News and The Nature Conservancy. His writing is witty, concise, biting, and most of all, deeply well-researched. Ted is an outdoor writer who aims to change his culture as an insightful sportsman. His articles delve into what ails our earth, the less humane side of who we are and what we do, and as a result, what are we what we are doing to our environment and sometimes the amount of energy we put into making things worse. In addition to authoring rare books and freelancing for national publications, Ted authors the monthly recovery column for the Nature Conservancy's online magazine, Cool Green Science. Today, we're delving into aspects of much of the public is not aware of and often doesn't want to know. Some of the dark truths hidden right before our eyes, oft disguised as wild beauty and conservation. From wildlife photography to so-called predator control and sport hunting. The underside of these activities are canned wildlife photography, how it crosses over into canned hunting, and the ugly business of killing contests in the guise of livestock protection. So without further ado, welcome, Ted. Hi, Ellie. Good to be with you. It's great to have you here. The more I dug into researching about you, and uh, I realize you're quite the star in environmental news columns. Um, I hadn't quite realized just how prolific you you are from our um, meeting on Facebook and the conservation, biogeography, bio... Biodiversity, geography, it's the CBBNH Facebook page. Right. <laughs> so I'm glad, you, I'm glad you mentioned uh, rare books because uh, that's the only kind I write. <laughs> so I, there was one on rabbits, I believe. Right. And right. I mean, I found a whole page that says books written by Ted Williams, but I'm not positive because I didn't get to go through all of them that they're by you. Uh, what are some of the books? Well, let's see. There's uh, Wild Moments, published by Story. There's uh, uh, Don't Blame the Indians, uh, published by Grace Boarding Journal Press. There's, uh, uh, let's see, there's uh, Something's Fishy, uh, published by Lions. Um, Insightful Sports, uh, published by um, down east. So that page I pulled up is you. Sorry? All rare books. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to pick a couple of them up because I adore your writing. Um, well, I, I get so... Inf- uh, sorry? Don't, don't buy them. I'll send them to you. That's the only way I can get them read. <laughs> well, don't you get um, royalties or something if they're sold? Uh, very little. Okay. Well, I still want to read them because I'm addicted 
to your okay. writing. So you're, as, as I've already highlighted, you're an amazing guy. You're witty and ironic and informative, and the way you write really draws people in. So my listeners, I strongly suggest you go to Cool Green Science at the Nature uh, Conservancy.org and read Ted's posts and his articles because he takes complex issues and brings them right to us so that we can understand them. They're not filled with a lot of jargon we don't understand. So, Ted, let's start with you giving us a bit of your background and how you came to be uh, one of today's highly acclaimed voices for the environment. Well, um, when I uh, graduated from journalism school with a master's degree, I, um, the uh, Fish, and, Fish and Wildlife Department of Massachusetts uh, went looking for somebody to, to edit their magazine and write news releases, and they went to Boston University, and uh, they asked who, who they had, and uh, the, the dean said, well, we've got one guy who can't spell at all, but he writes okay. So anyway, I got hired. <laughs> and I spent five years uh, writing for the uh, Massachusetts Division of Fisheries and Game. It's now called Fisheries and Wildlife, a slightly different mission now, thankfully. But it was a lot of fun. I made a lot of friends. I, I really didn't fit in um, well there. They didn't want much of what I like to write. Uh, they wanted articles about uh, where they were stocking the big ones. Um, but it was a good uh, a good five years, and then after that I went uh, freelancing. And that's when you headed off to Audubon and the columns there? Right, uh, and, and others. And Yale 360? Yale Environment 360, which is now edited by uh, one of my closest friends and former editor at Audubon, Roger Cohen. All right. Well, folks out there, list, my listeners, please check out both those um, sites because there are some amazing articles. And we're going to delve into some of those. So let's start with um, you are the CEO of the Native Fish Coalition um, Native na- National Native Fish Coalition based in Massachusetts, right? Well, they call me the national chair, I guess. Uh, but uh, it's, it's, it's based in, in New England, uh, uh, Maine and New Hampshire, Vermont. We're trying to spread out nationally. We're concerned about all native fishes, not just the ones that you can catch and eat. And, and what... What more do you do? So if it's a national, then that would be affecting me here in Colorado and our native rivers and native fish. Yeah, we have a, a, a website. Um, just People should just Google Native Fish Coalition, and uh, we have a, a lot of stuff on there. Uh, you can click on the blog and see the few things that I've written and linked. Um, we try to get two pieces up each day, um, at least. Um, not necessarily ones I've written, but... Wow, ones two, that piece, two pieces a day. Yeah, not necessarily ones I've written, but ones that are of interest to native fish advocates. Wow, you are a busy guy. So yeah. um, let's, um, let's delve into... Um, sort of head into our topics of the day. 
what we're doing to our earth, which we can start with, you know, our native fish in rivers and riparian areas. And then we're going to segue into some topics that are fitting into the current theme I'm working on in terms of wildlife management, predator control, and as I said earlier, some of the ugly uh, sides of this. So tell us a little bit more about how the coalition uh, works between states. Well, we're, we're trying to get um, states to start their own uh, chapters. Um, we are interested in, in um, um, like I said, all, all species of fish. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the management of, of fishes now, especially trout, um, is uh, not conducive to uh, native species uh, conservation. Uh, a lot of states stock hatchery trout on top of wild populations. It's a terrible idea. It, uh, um, it pollutes the gene pool. It causes uh, competition. Um, and it uh, winds up with, you wind up with fewer trout. Now, Montana in the mid-1970s uh, decided to stop stocking hatchery trout in all their rivers. And when they did that, the trout populations tripled. I find this interesting because not far from me, down toward the front range, there is a fish hatchery. And our rivers are stocked. So the, the thing we need to highlight is that our rivers are stocked with uh, these fish, some of them native, some of them non-native, and competes for our native fish because we humans want to catch them. And that's kind of the underlying theme of our conversation today, that a lot of what we are doing to our environment is not necessarily environmentally beneficial, but it's for us. Right. I should say that we're not against all stocking. Uh, you know, I live in Massachusetts, and we don't have any um, still water with, with native trout in it. Uh, so some of these ponds, especially in the Cape, these deep, cold um, uh, kettle hole ponds, uh, they wouldn't have any trout unless we stocked them. So that's fine. But we just, we just don't want wild trout being being uh, hybridized or outcompeted by, by hatchery fish. And, and uh, what's happened in a lot of the West is um, 12 races of native cutthroat trout are being hybridized off the planet by alien Brown trout from uh, from uh, alien rainbow trout from the Pacific Northwest, and outcompeted by alien brown trout from Europe, uh, stocking these all over the place, and uh, uh, it's it's uh, unfortunate. Uh, it, it a lot of the mistakes were made um, in the 20th century, uh, and we're trying to undo some of them with a product called Rotenol. Um, it's a very uh, sol- uh, mild benign fish poison it's supplied at uh, running water at 50 parts per billion with a B and it's the only tool we have for saving endangered fish from hybridization and being, being hybridized off the planet so when you say it's very specific it only affects the alien fish no it kills all the fish which you have to do um, it doesn't kill uh, any 
air-breathing wildlife. Okay. Um, a few insects, the insect, aquatic insects, bounce back very quickly. Um, it doesn't kill them all because some of them sense the poison and drift downstream. But if we didn't apply it, we would have had we have, would have lost the rarest trout on, in North America, the Paiute cutthroat. Uh, their entire habitat is Silver King Creek in California in the High Sierra. And years ago, somebody dumped rainbow trout into 11 miles of stream. And they were in the process of hybridizing out the native pilot cutthroat. Um, for 10 years, the Forest Service, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and the California Department of Fish and Wildlife um, attempted to apply rotenone. They were uh, sued by a multitude of well-meaning environmental groups that um, hadn't bothered to learn about rotenone. Um, and they were only able to, to do this um, two years ago. Uh, they they did rotenone 11 miles of stream. And it's the only example of a native fish being restored to 100% of its habitat. And Without rotenone, we couldn't have done it. So I'm trying to understand. You you put this in a selected section of river, and it runs downstream and carry it kills all fish all within fish. its dispersal area. So what do you do? What is done with the dead fish? And is there well, like a quick half life to rotenol that it dissipates and doesn't keep going? That's one of the problems with it. It's so short-lived that it can lose its toxicity in, in one hour. Okay. So I have to do it very quickly, and there's a chemical that can put in below the treatment area that precipitates it out of the water, so it's no longer a, a threat. So any, it's like an antidote? Uh, not an or, antidote. Just uh, it takes, takes it precipitates it out. Okay. Wow. Um, it, it, um, you have to kill... and. You have to kill all the fish, but before they apply it, the native fishes are evacuated. Um, uh, not the mongrels, but the native uh, bait fish, for example, and held. And then after they finish the treatment, they're reintroduced. Um, in Maine, for example, there are 10 populations of uh, Arctic char, landlocked Arctic char, the only place in the U.S. where we still have landlocked char. And in one pond, Big Green Pond, which is the, the whole uh, watershed is owned by the Nature Conservancy, um, somebody illegally introduced smelts uh, with the idea that they would create bigger char. And that was true. They did create bigger char, but they also ate the char fry. So the char were being in the process of being extirpated. Uh, the the state um, fish and inland, inland uh, wildlife fish and wildlife department went in and uh, evacuated um, a couple dozen of the remaining charts, all they could catch in their traps, put them to a hatchery, and then wrote on the pond, and then then reintroduced the the uh, char and some of their offspring from the hatchery, and just last year we had the first uh, evidence of, of reproduction. So that was a happy story. Uh, we would have lost that pond without this vital tool, Rotenone. 
Wow, that's that's fascinating because I I live on a river, gold medal fly waters, and um, I I like to be aware and of what's going on out there in my river. So all the folks out there that live in these areas where our native fish are being um, alienated because of introduced species. Uh, this is an important tip, so thank you for helping us understand that. Um, you know what? We've got to take a quick little break here, and we'll be right back to talk about some other issues that we've been following on in terms of uh, our uh, terrestrial flora, uh, excuse me, fauna. So stick with us, and we'll be right back. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie and my guest, Ted Williams, an amazing author who I truly suggest my audience go in and Google and read many of his columns. So the one we're going to get into today is one that Ted highlighted to me when I was on Facebook and I posted what I thought was a stunning image, which it is, of a cougar poised beautifully and perfectly on a ledge of a gorgeous canyon which I presume was in Utah those red sandstone canyons and I said gorgeous image and Ted came back and said yeah nice image for a captive wildlife and that so surprised me uh, um, that I came back and said how do you know this so you know being a photographer a wildlife photographer and schlepping for 
days, weeks, and months to get that perfect shot to find out that there is such a thing called canned wildlife photography. Surprised the heck out of me and that I didn't know this. So, Ted, this is part of the reason why we're talking today. Tell us about this this industry, this business. Well, yeah, it's... Uh, no, we... We don't allow lies in in uh, print journalism. Uh, you remember the fellow uh, named Blair who was wrote fiction uh, uh, under the guise of uh, reporting for the New York Times and got fired for along with my friend Howell Raines, who was the editor. Um, but we but it's it seems to be okay in in photography uh, journalism. I don't get it. It's um, I have a lot of friends uh, uh, who are professional wildlife photographers and work very hard to get legitimate shots of wildlife in, in nature. Um, they spend hours. And if you go to a, a game farm, you can rent a, a tame cougar or a tame uh, uh, snow leopard or a tame timber wolf, um, you know, for, for a morning. And uh, they're trained to uh, pose and you can get all kinds of great shots and sell them to magazines and calendars. And I, I have one friend who um, who gave up selling deer photos because uh, there were so many great up-close photos from game farms of deer with uh, super-sized uh, grotesque antlers that were, were, were made possible by all kinds of supplements and drugs and vitamins so it's it's a it's a dirty business and it's connected with canned hunts because when these animals uh, get old um, they, uh, or, or when there's too many they're sold as quote shooters to uh, canned hunting operations I, uh, I I went out to an, um, a, uh, a game farm in Montana um, undercover and rented uh, a cougar and some wolves, and <laughs> it was uh, the cougar was uh, it was like twenty below zero that particular day, and the poor cougar hadn't, wasn't used to being outside and was shaking her paws, and uh, she wasn't really performing too well. The the fellow who handled her had a, a ball on a rope, and so she was playfully batting at at the, at the ball. And uh, we took pictures of that. Uh, he didn't know we were also taking pictures of the ball. Uh, and then the wolves were, I felt sorry for the wolves. They were in a, a dark cage all day. The only time they, they had to get outside was, was when they rented for a few minutes. They were trained to run around a, a big uh, fenced in area with rocks and trees and uh, pose viciously. When they did, they were rewarded with a, a beef treat. Uh, and then they growled and snarled, and at the end they rolled over their backs for belly rubs. Um, it, it was uh, kind of sad. The uh, That particular game farm was called the Triple D. It, it's, I, I guess it's the best, if you can say it's the best one. I wanted to go to Animals of Montana, also in Montana, but uh, I found that they just been um, shut down for various... Uh, Violations of the Endangered Species Act and Lacey Act. Um, so you've they, just you've just highlighted 
a whole bunch of things in my brain. A, game farms. We know there are game farms in the U.S., and these are usually associated with, you know, sports hunting for a specific species. And um, it's so reminiscent of what's going on in South Africa of, let's call them canned lions and canned lion hunts and all the offshoots, spinoffs that have been created, you know, cub petting, walking with lions, and the bone trade for lion carcasses into Asia. We just don't often um, realize or think or want to know that that's also happening with our iconic wildlife here in the U.S. So when we hear about a game farm, um, so these places like the Triple D or Animals Montana, they advertise themselves as game farms. Do they also do hunting or is, and is the offshoot renting a good-looking animal for photography? And then you also stated the conditions they are kept in when they're not performing are not up to not up to par uh no uh they're not um some of them have been shut down because because of that uh, triple d is still in business um it, it's uh, an, uh animals of montana had a terrible reputation that um one person I reported that uh, a cougar wouldn't cooperate, so it was dragged and kicked until until it did. Um, it, it's it's a dirty business, and then, like I said, the the uh, when the animals get old or, or there's too many of them, they they um, are sold to, to canned hunts. Animals in Montana uh, euthanized eight timber wolves because uh, they were quote dangerous. In other words, they behave like wolves. Uh, this, so, this, this is just mind-boggling. Well, it's no different than what you have in Africa. In Texas, there are all kinds of game farms. A lion, lion hunt. The lions have names. Uh, they're tame. They come to be patted, and then they're shot in their cages. One of them, one uh, black leopard tried to hide under the car and was still shot when, when it was under the car. Um, how come, we, how come we don't know about this? I mean, we spend so much time and energy here in the U.S., you know, slamming South Africa for and CITES for its its participation in these inhumane um, businesses and their spinoffs. How come, other than your writing about it, how come this isn't more well-known? Well, for one thing... Um the environment, environmental movement is, is kind of passe these days. The environmental magazines, I'm sure you've seen them, they're all uh, as thin as, as pamphlets, uh, because largely because of the Internet. And, you know, when I started in the 1970s, uh, you know, I had to turn down assignments. There were so many, so many people wanted them. The environment was, was really in. So there's not a lot of uh, uh, publications that are interested in wildlife or covering it. Um, uh, it's, or when they do, it's not our wildlife, or yeah. it's mostly geared toward sportsmen's magazines, which are loaded and backed and sponsored by either gun manufacturers or outdoor gear, equipment, and clothing. Correct. And, you know, the 
another big problem is is disease and these these um, game farms um, both for photography and for can hunts uh, are spreading uh, disease all over North America uh, to, to deer um, probably heard that uh, in in England mad cow disease has yeah. jumped has jumped to humans uh, there's a real possibility that chronic wasting disease in deer will jump to humans if that happens you could spread it by by kissing another person so d- d- um, help me understand how the canned game and canned game ranches are spreading this de- disease into the wild well they're uh, for one thing they're selling deer urine uh, in 55 gallon drums spreading it all around who would want to buy deer urine well deer hunters they spread it on their clothing and uh, they smell good to deer instead of like human. But they don't understand that, that, that uh, chronic wasting disease and other uh, uh, t- uh, bovine TB and other uh, vile diseases are, are transported in, in deer urine. Um, wow. Just the fact that they're, they're crowded into these small enclosures. Um, wow. And then this chronic wasting disease is a big deal right now here in the west and it's also becoming a big deal over in the east with way too many deer and our hunting management which is geared toward game species those we want to kill versus wildlife management which includes our carnivores so does chronic wasting disease transfer uh, transmit to carnivores as well? Uh, not to my knowledge, not yet. Uh, it's it's mostly ungulates, um, or or all, all ungulates, I guess. Uh, but the, the the deer eruption in the east is is dangerous and grotesque, and um, um, it, it's it's a real threat to other wildlife. It's it's eliminating. Um, how so? Because the deer are eating everything. Well, if you, for instance, if you, if you have twenty wild white-tailed deer per square mile, there's complete loss of cerulean warblers, yellow-billed cuckoos, uh, indigo bunting, eastern wood peabies, and least flycatchers because they they eat the vegetation that they they nest in. At sixty-four deer per square mile, you lose your eastern phoebes and even your robins. But it's not only birds that nest on, uh, on or close to the ground that are being wiped out. It's by the, uh, by the overabundant deer. Uh, deer remove saplings and, uh, that uh, are used by mid-canopy nesters like peewees, tanagers, uh, grosbeaks. And they are destroying imperiled and endangered plants. So wow. there's no control. There's no possibility of it reintroducing cougars or wolves in the east they're only obligate predators hunters are help but they can't do the job alone uh, and further the hunters in a lot of these uh, a lot of our states there are the carnivores are considered vermin and take what we want so there is a lot of which is what we're going to get into next okay. killing contests to um, remove the carnivores which would 
take care of this problem. If we could reintroduce cougars and reintroduce wolves and quit killing them out of hand, we would solve a lot of the, the deer problem and the ecological problem in balancing out the, the landscape, which is what Robert Beshta and William Ripple did a lot of studies about, and John Landre in terms of the ecology of fear. Right. And pa- Pennsylvania is one of the worst states for gross deer overpopulation. And, uh, a few years ago, they got an enlightened deer manager by the name of Gary Ault, uh, who went in there and he, and he, he convinced the, uh, the department and many of the sportsmen that they needed to kill more does. Uh, to get the first of all to get the, the buck bill ratio in balance and and then to, to, to limit the population so you'd have healthier deer and healthier uh, healthier woods um, some of the hunters who are used to sitting on a stump and seeing 50 deer through uh, no no understory because it's gone been eaten by the deer finally um, ganged up and put political pressure on uh, Mr. Alt and forced him out. So now we're back to, you know, not killing enough deer in Pennsylvania. Um, and even with the hunters, uh, if they were doing it right, it'd still have a problem because deer adapt. They become active at night. Um, I was on the board of a, of a wildlife federation. We had a 3,500-acre preserve, and the first day of deer season, all the deer moved into the preserve because they knew. Huh. Wow. So once again, this goes back to where we started in the very beginning of, you know, our manipulation of the landscape in terms of what we want to take and how that erupts into major problems for us in terms of what we can take and too much and then the cascade of consequences throughout the landscape. Right. Scary stuff. Scary stuff. So, um, go ahead. And depressing, too. It is. It's very depressing. So, I have a question. When deer hunters go out and hunt, and we've got chronic wasting disease, do they kill these deer? And if so, what happens if you eat that meat? Or are they only taken for trophies, as you said, the, the rack of antlers? Well... You know, I like to think that most hunters um, uh, kill for, for, for the meat, and, and they, they have ethics. Um, they don't know that uh, an animal has chronic wasting disease, perhaps. Maybe it hasn't really not symptomatic yet. Uh, if they eat it so far, uh, there doesn't seem to be a threat. But like I said, it's entirely possible that... Uh, like its cousin, mad cow disease, it could jump to humans. And if that happens, we're in big trouble. Because do we not have the antibodies to take care of it? Uh, Some friends of mine in Botswana studied um, vector transmission of TB from mongoose to elephant and throughout other populations and realized that the mongoose in communities far from humans are showing resistance to 12 out of the 17 antibiotics that we have on the market today. So if this spreads so widely 
and jumps, do we have the ability to fight it in people? Or are we going to end up with what happened in the UK with mad cow disease? Having uh, to kill everything. We're going to end up with what happened in the, in the UK. Because um, uh, chronic wasting disease and mad cow disease is, is not caused by a bacteria or a virus. It's called by a, caused by a prion. Uh, we're kind of not sure what that is, but there's no uh, chemical treatment for it. Um, not yet, so uh, it's it's a it's a big worry, and it's it's also a worry for healthy deer populations. We want healthy, balanced deer populations. Right. Um, you know, it, things are better in the West, but they're they're getting bad there too. And it, and it also comes up with what you had alluded to is our um, fish and wildlife departments divisions. Um, change in models from the old school good old boys club do everything uh, for their what they like to say largest financial supporters the hunters and start thinking more about the environment and creating a balance so uh, right now we're gonna step away and take a break and we're gonna come back into um, the other side of what we've been talking about when it gets really ugly of the carnivore killing contest so stick with us and we'll be right back wildlife no wild no life big scary beautiful predators are in danger without them our rivers dry up our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. 
and welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss, and you're listening to Our Wild World with my fascinating guest, Ted Williams, prolific uh, author, columnist of uh, the, um, oh goodness, I've just lost my note, the uh, uh, Danger Conservancy and your column, Recovery, uh, an online magazine and cool green science. Also, Ted, uh, as we're segueing now into the carnage side of, oh, what we could call environmental health or what we're trying to do to improve the environment or under the auspices of environment, predator control. And, uh, you know, that includes our wildlife services and hunting and outdoor sports uh, sportsmanship, but it's taken an ugly turn. And I found, you pointed me and I found several articles that you've written on the gruesome truth about wildlife killing contests. And there's one published under uh, Yale 360, Yale Environment 360, that is an excellent read and uh, we'll link the, we'll link our, our episode today to this. So, Tell us a little bit about this, or tell, help us understand what this does, the people who are involved in it, and what it does to the carnivore populations that are being targeted. Well, the people that are doing it, I don't consider hunters. Um, um, you better call them assassins. Uh, they're, they're just uh, killing um, coyotes and foxes and bobcats, prairie dogs, crows, for the fun of it, uh, as targets. I was always taught that if you killed something, you ate it. And one of my friends um, killed a skunk. And his father said, okay, now you're going to eat it. That was a good lesson. Um, These contests, um, they're all over the country. Uh, they, They go out and shoot, you know, hundreds of coyotes. Pile, take take pictures, pile them up, and throw them away. Don't even use the skins. And, um, and these are hunting clubs and hunting groups. No, I, again, or, they, or, they're not hunting groups. Well, they're, they call themselves hunting clubs. Yes, and, and, and hunters resent that because they're giving us a bad image. And um, you talk to any of the ethical hunting groups, Orion, the Hunters Institute, or the um, Isaac Walton League or the uh, Wildlife Federations in the States, they, they all uh, are, are major critics of these, of these uh, events. Um, and these, at, at these events, they offer big cash prizes for the, the hunter who bags the biggest animal or the most. And they, in some... In, some articles that I've seen recently in shared posts, they hang up the carcasses along the fences. And in one of them, it was 149 coyotes all hung up and then, as you said, discarded. Right. And in Idaho, they shoot wolves, too, uh, the same way. Uh, it's, uh, it's really grotesque. Uh, uh, I have a friend uh, named Melissa Grew, who is uh, a young wildlife photographer making a huge name for herself national publications um, she's so young that she never used film it's all di- digital and she takes fantastic photos um, um, and teaches uh, ethics 
in photography. And this is what, this, here's a statement she gave me for the article. I'll read it to you. I believe that wildlife belongs to all of us. I'm fine with hunting for food, but these killing contests are wanton waste, not hunting. There's a place in the ecosystem for these animals, but they're thought of as garbage and disposable. At a time when so much of our wildlife is in peril and we've destroyed so much habitat, I think we should look at these animals differently and understand that they have families, feelings, and relationships. Let's honor them by celebrating their lives instead of their deaths. That pretty much sums it up for me. I think that's a a great statement. I'd I'd agree with you there. And it brings in um, a relatively recent concept that is getting more attention in terms of animal ethology, that animals have feelings, that they have relationships, that they show joy, they have emotions, and that their families mean something to them. So even if we can't speak their language, and even if they did speak English, I don't know if we'd understand them, but these killing contests, um, okay, we've discussed that you know, hunting, we're not anti-hunting here. Hunting for food is, is one thing. Hunting for the joy of killing and removing an, an, an important part of the ecosystem, the, the chain of predators, is not only unethical, we can question the morals, but let's talk about what it does to the ecosystem. So it seems a lot of these hunting contests are bringing and bagging in. They're in many states, multiple hunting groups or clubs in in many states taking on average you know 200 coyotes a weekend or a day or a couple of hours and then there's more and more coyotes so what i to my two of my questions are is part of our current politics the reason for this mindset and question number 2 when we create this vacuum of coyotes, bobcats, cougars, wolves, what the wildlife responds by erupting. We get more and more coyotes, etc. Well, uh, it depends. Uh, with, with wolves, um, you, you know, you're, you're taking out important predators. Uh, there was, uh, they're shot in Idaho in contests, and, and uh, People should should log on to um, uh, Chris, Christopher Ketchum's uh, article in, in Vice. Uh, under, he went undercover and participated in, in a, Idaho's Coyote and Wolf Derby, sponsored by Idaho for Wildlife, ironically named. Uh, he shot with saw wolf, pur- pur- purposely uh, missing. Uh, but he quoted one of the participants named Cal as follows. And Cal told him at a bar, Gut shoot every goddamn last one of them wolves. Um, and he, he recommended armor piece piercing bullets, explaining that gut shooting with these rounds uh, has two advantages. Quote, first, they'll pass right through instead of mushrooming, so the animal will suffer, running in panic for a mile or so before it bleeds out. Second, if you're hunting illegally, 
as he recommended and other contestants recommended, game wardens won't find the bullet. Uh, this is the uh, mentality of these these groups, and when they, um, without exception, the Kyle killing contest uh, promoters say they're doing it uh, to save livestock. They're really doing a wonderful service for farmers because you know some coyotes will kill sheep and and, and calves and poultry, um, but actually they're creating more coyotes. Uh, uh, the seminal work was done by Bob Crabtree of Yellowstone, and he uh, investigated coyotes that were uh, occupying habitat to, to carrying capacity. Um, and because of the competition and, and uh, the limited number of uh, game species, they averaged uh, 2.5 coyotes per litter. Then he went and, and researched coyotes uh, that were, were heavily uh, killed uh, by, quote, um, predator control for, for wildlife, for uh, livestock. And he found that those coyotes compensate for the mortality by producing five to six pups per litter. So you don't get fewer coyotes by by killing them. Um, so, get- so what happens is less competition between coyotes. So they have to fill that gap with more pups and there's more resources to have those pups grow to adulthood and survive. And there are fewer adults to bring food to the pups. So it just doesn't work. And Carter uh, Amor is a friend of mine. He, he worked for Wildlife Services. And Wildlife Services takes a lot of heat for, for predator control. They do a lot of good stuff, too. They, they save uh, endangered shorebirds. And they've... Uh, They've gotten rid of the nutrient on the East Coast, an invasive uh, alien uh, rodent that is wiping out habitat for everything, waterfall. They, they, they've cleared them out, and that's great stuff. Um, and they're getting better with predator control. But Carter had an interesting story um, back about 20 years ago when he worked for Wildlife Services. Um, there were two kinds of, of coyote control. One was... Um, Corrective. If you have a couple of coyotes that are killing sheep, you go in and kill the coyotes. That makes sense. The other was preventive. Um, you put a helicopter in the air and you shoot every coyote you see because someday it might kill a sheep. Well, one day uh, he got a call from a rancher. And the rancher asked him, um, do coyotes have revenge killings? And he said, Carter said, what do you mean? And Rancher said, well, we've, we haven't had problems with coyotes, you know, all winter. And, and a couple days ago, we, we heard your helicopters shooting, and, uh, and now they're coming in and killing our sheep. reason for that is because there, there are coyotes that are desirable around farms. They're the ones that, that kill rats and mice. Um, when you disrupt that, you, you create chaos. And other coyotes that may not do this move in and they'll kill a sheep. So preventive coyote control doesn't work. I think Wildlife Service is learning this, I hope. Um, like I say, they they take an awful lot of heat unfairly because they do a lot of really good stuff. And I've written about that too. And 
so wildlife services is a is almost a conversation unto themselves and carter's been a guest on on my program as well as uh bob crabtree um so what what we're hearing here we have maybe five six minutes left for today's episode what can we as wildlife advocates who follow the thoughts of melissa grew that these animals have a place an important place in our ecosystem how can we uh intelligently advocate to stop killing contests rather than you know clickivism and the vitriol that gets spewed how can we intelligently converse and be effective to stop this practice well we can become politically active it's possible uh, in vermont uh, wildlife advocates uh, Brenna Angel, and you may have talked to her, uh, Protector of Wildlife and others, they got coyote contest stopped. It can be done everywhere. Um, it's being done in a few places. I mentioned them in my article. I forget exactly what states, but uh, it's entirely possible and it needs to happen. Uh, but also, the public can can learn about things, like rotenone, for, for example. If you Google rotenone, you'll, 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 if you don't read the stuff I've written, uh, you'll 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 see all these um, scary scary stories about how dangerous it is. It allegedly ha- is linked to Parkinson's the Parkinson's disease, which is it's nonsense. It isn't. That research was done by Emory and what university, in which they mainlined rotenone into rats' brains for a year. Um, at the end of a year, uh, no rat had Parkinson's. They had Parkinson's disease symptoms which is tremors. That's what the researchers were trying to do. So learn about uh, rotenone. Learn about uh, deer hunting. Um, deer need to be hunted in the east. Um, you know, these, these wildlife advocates who want to ban deer hunting are advocating uh, the, the destruction of, of all manner of, of other wildlife, ground and shrub nesting birds, for example. So it kind of comes down to, as you just said, educating ourselves on why hunting can be uh, a, a good resource to manage overpopulation of specific species, and better yet, to understand the misuse of livestock control and predator control. And to understand that we're not, go- I don't, I'm not quite sure how to say this without getting everybody upset, that some animals do have to die. And some hunting is very good and some is very unethical. So what we have to do is understand and differentiate rather than slam and put everything into one category. All hunters are slobs. And that having good ungulate populations and good apex predator populations is beneficial to all of us. Exactly. All right. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time today. Do you, what would be your 
last comment for today. I hope to talk with you some more as I delve more into your articles because you're so fascinating on, on a wide variety of topics. But what would be your takeaway for today's conversation? Well, I just hope people will get out into the woods and fields. Um, get out there and, and, and see the stuff for yourselves. Um, don't get hooked on animal rights propaganda or or, uh, or slob hunter propaganda from the wildlife killing contest uh, people. Uh, Good advice. Good advice. So, once again, it's about educating ourselves about our wild world. Listen to more of the podcasts here with an amazing number of guests, many of which uh, Ted mentioned today. And 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 teach yourselves, educate yourselves about what's out there. And the outdoors is not just about recreating. It's about getting out there and tuning in and just being in nature, that, that reconnecting with the earth that provides for us and all the other life forms that are critical to its functions. So... Ted, I thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation, and I hope to talk with you more. Uh, But thank you for today. It was good to be with you, Ellie. It was great. I learned a lot. So I'm going to read a lot more, and I urge our listeners to go in and just Google Ted Williams, and you will find so many articles and his books, even though they're rare, um, and read, read Read, read, read. I can't uh, impress that enough and urge that enough. We need to understand what's going on and protect our wild world. So thank you for listening. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. 